Hi, I'm Sir Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Please subscribe wherever you are. We want to get you uh, up and out talking about this stuff. And today's guest is a special guest. I've been following Mark Cortez's stuff online on LinkedIn for a little while, and it's been very interesting. Check him out if you haven't done so already. And he's from the world of sort of business. Background is renewable energy, but he's been working on kind of talking about climate as something that needs a balance. And this is something I certainly believe in, but I know that, you know, I've said to you on this podcast that I've been criticised for our Big Zero show recently where we had one of the guest companies there. We take a view on Future Net Zero that you should have a balance of things, having some nuclear, having offshore wind, having some maybe e-fuels. But you certainly find, particularly on social media, there's almost, call it a kind of polarised view of net zero. And Mark has written a book called Climaturity, which is a, a journey into the muddy climate middle. And I thought that was quite a good one. I haven't read it yet, Mark, but I wanted to talk to you about kind of this whole thing about where this debate is going. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Now, your background, you're California based. Your background is business, isn't it? You've been in the renewable industry a hell of a long time, longer than me. Give us a sort of potted history of, of what got you into the kind of renewable space. Yeah, I uh, so um, yeah, I, I sold my first solar panel on the tip of Northern Africa in 1999. So I've been doing this for a long time. And uh, I worked in the aerospace and defense industry as an engineer out of college. So mostly from a technical background, but always kind of gravitated towards things that were business oriented. So they were much better engineers than I developing stuff. And I was always on the sales and marketing side of it. And so I transitioned into renewables because I just thought it was a really interesting space. It was brand new at the time, you know, solar energy. What the heck is that? That was on cabins and boats. Yeah. <laughs> so, and really, really obscure. I mean, it was literally, I was in Morocco selling these things for water pumps. So a long time coming and now, you know, and now these are utility scale power plants. So we've come a long way, baby, right? It's been a long road. <laughs> and so it was always really interesting. And I loved the early part of solar you know, we were always sort of David to the big oil companies, Goliath, right? And we could always just make slow incremental progress. We put solar on homes, we put solar, we started to put it on buildings. And then, you know, the market progressed as we started to get more traction. So it's always been really interesting, been a fun industry, but also a brutal industry. You know, one of the things that happened was the, once the Asian manufacturers came in, mm. they just ate everybody's lunch. Yeah. So there was a vibrant U.S. manufacturing industry that is now collecting dust. I mean, and the body count. And I personally was involved with really, I mean... BP Solar, right? One of the world's biggest. I mean, yes, they're yes. they're an oil company, and right, everyone hates them for being an oil company, but they were also <laughs> one of the early pioneers of solar. Mm. And so, let's not uh, downplay a company's profit motive towards even doing some good. So they were actually looking to see if they can make it work, and they failed, right? So big companies have tried this. Solar has always been what I call like a new puppy. Everyone wants to pet it until it, it goes and, and bites you and you realize, <laughs> hey, this is this is hard business. Yeah. And there's a reason that the world moved to China for this. It's hard. And you have to, it's a dirty, you know, boots in the soot kind of business where you're digging up the earth 
to produce stuff and it's tough to compete. So we call it the solar coaster for a reason. And that's where we are. And that's kind of my short history. I, I also, about six or seven years ago, started teaching at a university uh, here at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And, you know, I started working with these young adults who were, this is really the first generation of children who've been fed a steady diet of climate apocalypse yeah. their whole life. And now we're kicking them off. Okay, go ahead. Go, you know, you're now educated. Go forth into the world. And these are kids, you know, they're 22 year olds who think that they can't have children because of this nonsense that we've been feeding them that, oh, no, you're going to die by the weekend because of a heat wave or because of this, right? And it's just, we have built panic into their DNA. And it's, I personally took it very personally because I'm like, how the hell did this happen? How did we, this is just an epic failure on adults' part, right? Instilling hopelessness into a generation of children is awful. And so that's what's inspired me to start writing and to take a dip different position and start raising my hand and say, come on, folks, let's get real here. Let's actually be able to have a dialogue, an actual dialogue, as opposed to just... Yeah, and this is the thing, right? And people will be listening to this and probably shouting at the, at the uh, Alexa or wherever the hell they're playing it. Let's get some things straight, right? You're not a climate denier, are you? You don't think there is no. There's no effect of man-made climate change? No, of course not. Climate change is real. I've never once said it. What I'm saying is, look, climate change is real. If we turn our science backwards, which is what we should be doing, and measure and observe stuff, we can see that since 1880 till now, global temperatures, if there is such a thing as average global temperature, and that's a whole yeah. controversial yeah. subject, but... It's gone up by what? 1.1 degree? Mm -hmm. So, okay. And a lot of things have happened in those 150 years. A lot of good things. Absolutely. Science has transformed our lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Longevity, everything. Nutrition, the whole lot. And, you know, for all the pronouncements of humanity dying, we've gone from two and a half billion people to eight billion people. So, you know, clearly the opposite is happening, right? So there's good things and there's bad things. And we've got this energy source, oil and gas, that has provided great benefits to society. But shh, we're not allowed to say that. Right? No one's no one's allowed to take credit for that. <laughs> I always joke. I said, it's like we're all alcoholics and we stand up and proudly proclaim yeah. oil and glass is bad, bad, bad. And then we leave and we go into the closet and we start drinking Jack Daniels, right? It's like, shh, don't tell anyone. Well, we all use oil and gas. We're all going to be using oil and gas. I personally know you can't make a solar module without lots of it. You can't make a windmill. You can't make EVs, right? It's it's no, just, I know. That's just a fact of life. And it's not going anywhere as much as, I mean, if, if we shut off that pipeline tomorrow, then humanity takes a big, deep tumble. So science is told us a lot of things. And, you know, I like Stephen Coonan's version of this, where he says, you know, we know enough about what's going on with the climate uh, and the history that we should be paying attention. And yes, we're all paying attention. I think I would find that most people would agree with that. Where, where it differs very quickly is how severe is it and how crazy do we have to get to solve it? That's where the extremes come yeah. in, right? That's where people are throwing art or people are throwing condiments that aren't in the Louvre and gluing themselves yeah. to runways. And it's like, what yeah. What the heck is all that about? And this whole thing, and, you know, I've had Just Up Oil on and been jatted down by, listen, no one denies that we should be cutting back, right? Yeah. But I, I wonder whether you see in the States, as it's sort of started happening here, there seems to be polarization, as I said at the beginning of net zero. So which is, you can say, I'd like to be net zero, but the given thought is, you can only go net zero this way, which is scrap nuclear, scrap all oil and gas, 
of full whack renewables. It's EVs all the way. Yeah. You can't think of any other way of it. Don't do hydrogen. And in a way, it's a kind of very prescriptive argument, which again, as I say, it's in the media, it's in you know social media. Get it on LinkedIn, for God's sakes, the amount of times people stir up on it and I sit and observe. And sometimes I get involved and sometimes I don't. But why do you think that is that very sane, rational human beings, business people, people running companies, scientists, have got themselves into a state where now there is almost a kind of, I want to go green, you're doing it too slow. And we're all going to die if you don't do it much faster. Why is this imperative thing come about, which is very vociferous and getting all the tabloid column inches and the airtime and now getting heard in boardrooms? Yeah, I actually find that to be the most fascinating part of this whole climate journey is the psychology of it. Especially, let's add the flavor to it, because it's not just that. It's not, you got to do it this way. Yeah. You're not allowed to say the nuclear. That's a four-letter word. You're not allowed to use oil and gas. Yeah. It has to be EVs. Here are the answers. But here's the thing. Everyone who's saying that is not doing any of that. So... There's this huge hypocrisy, and this is the part that drives me crazy. I'm going to use an example, and this will be controversial, but who? that's what this... Wait, wait, that's what this website's about, this podcast's about. Go for it. Right? So recently, I saw all on social media, and this is probably what got my attention hooked into me, was there was an article about Sir David Attenborough's yeah. upcoming film, yeah. and how he's a hero, and things like that. And I say, look, I love his movies. He's fantastic. Of course, there's a reason he's a sir and I'm not, right? He's <laughs> he's fantastic movie maker. But I do draw the line when, hey, someone who has used more energy than an entire village will in its entire lifetime and has reaped personally the benefits of oil and gas. I mean, this gentleman has flown around the earth 20, 23, 24 times, self-proclaimed, right? This is not my, I'm not making this up. So, and now he's nearing the end of his life and, and he's produced these great movies and consumed way more oil and gas than you and I ever will, and is now saying, hey, guess what? Y'all got to stop using this stuff. No, you don't get to do that. And I saw that post, and you got shouted down by Leslie. It was very interesting. Oh, my God. I, I just got skewered. Yeah. And I, look, this is... So one of the interesting things is you're required to be a moralist these days, mm. right? So I like if you say the word oil and gas... Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, you know, people are going to pound on you, even though they're sitting at the same gas station you are, for crying out loud, right? So, but what has done this? Has it been, I mean, you look back the last decade, you know, Greta, the extinction, but it's all happened very recently, yeah. actually, the last kind of five, six years, some of it pre-COVID, some of it after COVID. But, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm in my mid-50s, and I grew up with pollution, right? Pollution was the big thing. Yep. The ozone layer and things like that. And we had deforestation. And the world was much more about the idea of us damaging the biosphere, which is what my big thing is. We are, excuse me, seriously damaging the biosphere with pollution and plastics and all these things. But it suddenly began this thing about kind of, you know, climate change, which probably has some political ramifications in the old Bush regime. But it then extrapolated into this narrative that we are killing the planet yeah. and we're killing it so far and then we you know as, as a consequence we're, we're killing ourselves but it was always i think seemed fairly reasoned until recently i wonder if you can put your finger on why it has become so accelerated and exactly why you get shouted down because you can't have another view one way or the other it's got to be this way why, why do you think that has happened well, I, I'll go back to 2014 is probably the time I really noticed that the volume increased. And look, a lot of it is 
a result out of good things that have happened, right? These IPCC reports. The IPCC reports, yeah, absolutely. These are good things, right? Or they they can be, but they're also terrible things. And the reason I say this is, uh, number one, there are these big 8,000-page multi-document tomes that no one ever reads. I actually have read them, so I feel comfortable in saying this. Well done. <laughs> well done. I read the exact summary, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, the, and guess what? The exact summaries are very different from the reports. Mm. If you read, for example, the extreme weather event attribution sections, you would be, it'll put you to sleep. I mean, there's a long list of things that they go through, and, and the only thing that they can really say that there may be some connection to is a higher probability of some maybe some extreme heat events over the next 30 years. But I mean, there's a long list of things that they just go, yeah, there's no, there's no, you know, we can't sh- see any trends at all. So it's, but here's what it did. It was just, it can support whatever conclusion you want. You can go in that document and I've done this just as sort of a fun snarky type exercise where, okay, if I want to be a climate denier, boom, it's in there. If I want to be a climate apocalyptic, boom, it's in there. I can pull out five sentences, write a pit. So the narrative has been pulled away from the science. Yes. And okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is the science. Let's talk about the science. Now, I'm not a client scientist. It's political science. Yeah. <laughs> but it's political science. And so they there was an effort. Um, it's documented. It's public information. The climate activist crowd said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna do exactly what big oil did. We're gonna do exactly what big tobacco did." Yeah. There were very well funded people who did that. They said, "We're gonna go and hire our own scientists and fund the hell out of them." And now we've got science, quote unquote, that proves everything that we've said. You know, I'll, I'll give you a great example: the 1.5 degree C number. I, I challenge anybody to go find the scientific reports that underpin that. And I'll just, I'll cut to the chase. They don't exist, which is amazing to me, right? I mean, our whole premise is we have to hold everything to 1.5 degrees C or really bad stuff happens. Guess what? It doesn't exist. The science behind that, like true science where they did studies and all this kind of stuff doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's a political reality. It's a political goal. Yes. But the science isn't there. And if I'm wrong, then let's do it. But I have looked for, I have literally spent a year looking for this stuff. And if it's so ubiquitous, it should be everywhere, right? So that's an example. You know, so you've got this captive science, and then there's this sort of abomination, I just have to say, of this thing called attribution science, which is blame science, right? Which is, well, we can't prove stuff. So we're going to just use math and sort of, you know, mathematical statistical trickery to, you know, bind them together. So they just look at data. Here's a data point. Here's a data point. I'm going to say, you know, 47.3% of the time that's going to be true. They're there. I have now attributed this event to climate change. And there you go. And so if you're a journalist, you just are eating this stuff up and say, hey, you know, scientists now say that the world's going to be dead by Sunday. Kiss your kids goodbye, right? And that's what's happened. And so it's this confluence. It's a co-opting of science. It's a, you know, there's a lot of scientists that have become very, you know, notorious because of this and famous because of their work here. And so that's a, that's an allure. And then the social media, that just the social media churn of it all, it's just kind of fed up on itself. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, um, funny, as we've been looking at this, I'm reading some of the summaries of the IPCC, and there is no single 1.5 degree warmer world 
uh, scenario, in addition to the overall increase, important to consider the size and duration of potential overshoots in temperature. There's questions on how the stabilization increase can be achieved and how the policies. I mean, there are little paragraphs in sentences in brackets which say high confidence, medium confidence, yeah. kind of what they predict. So, you know, you could say the scientists are actually saying, look, we're putting this there. We think the high confidence is that things will be worse if you go to two degrees than 1.5. Okay. And the science is basically it. It is confidence. It's the best guess until it's done, because obviously you can't predict the future. You can do modelling of it. Yeah. But, you know, and I've spoken to people who worked on it, and I think they're all very genuine scientists, and they, and they certainly believe in this stuff. But I think the thing that gets me is that, you know, if you talk to the scientists who are there, they're presenting the facts. There's a political push, which brings us into the world of lobbyists, which said this is the way to do it. Now, if you're actually reasoned, you'd say the way to do it is across a variety of things yes. and do that. But, you know, you've said it yourself before we started recording, you know, you go to your country and uh, you go to California, let's go green. Although there's quite a lot of oil and gas there. So you go to Texas, I want to keep polluting the hell because I don't care. There are two extremes. I do think, like you, most people are in the middle, but that narrative isn't really being heard much, is it? You've either got massive climate deniers or, as you say, massively apocalyptic voices. Yeah. And, and like someone like myself who is, you know, look, I'm living proof that it exists because I helped build the solar business and I'm a conservative. Yeah. Right. Those should never exist in the same sentence. Yeah. And in fact, you know, that's something you'll never hear most solar people say. But it worked because we didn't it just didn't matter. Now it matters. Now you can't say that. Now, now you're not allowed to say that. And so I'm kind of Voldemort, right? I'm, you know, <laughs> the solar people won't, you know, they scream at me and they're like, how can you say that solar is not going to save the planet? And I'm like, oh boy, this is just really simple math, right? This is not, no PhD required, no 97% consensus required. If you're telling me that an energy source that works maybe a third of the day, if it's lucky, probably 25% of the day that we have a manufacturing capacity globally, that would take well over 100 years to produce enough solar to power the world for a third of the day. Are you telling me really seriously that uh, this is going to save our planet? And if that's true, then why hasn't anyone done it? I mean, the technology has been around since 1950, right? It's, it was invented for the space program. Why aren't there any solar, all only solar towns? And the reason is because it doesn't work all the day, for crying out loud. This is not rocket science. Yeah, it's interesting. The boss of a big energy company, obviously, <laughs> Centrica, who is an oil gas company, he posted a very interesting post the other day, again, on social media, which said, you know, in the UK, generally, we've really done well on renewables, you know, got about sort of 40 odd percent sometimes much higher of the grid being powered through renewable energy. Yeah. But he pointed out to a day where the wind didn't blow, there wasn't enough sunshine. And actually, the power to stabilize us was coming 68% from gas, fossil fuels. Sure. Yeah. And he said, look, you know, this shows you that, you know, we need some hydrogen, there's a balance to it. And again, no, this is, a, you know, destroyed. And, you know, well, you would say that because you're making your money out there. Hydrogen will never work. And that's just a disaster. I did a, a podcast with some scientists from Germany who are working in Peru, looking at spinning off e-fuels and, and, you know, put this sudden thing to me, which because I thought, you know, I've got an EV. I thought I, I get it. I drive an EV. I think it's much nicer. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, it's good because it's quiet. There's nothing coming out the tailpipe, all of that. But then obviously there's the whole life carbon side of it. And that's a goes on and on and on but you know they were talking about what do you think about the fact that 
the world, and this is, I think, the thing I'm trying to get to, is a lot of this, dare I say, Western, generally white, preoccupation of richer nations. And the people in places like India, Malaysia, the Philippines, Brazil, you know, parts of rural China, parts of rural bloody Russia, for God's sakes, they just want to get on with it. They're just trying to get themselves out of it. You know, you go to Indonesia and they're going to be affected more. But the debate isn't that they're just looking for power. They're looking for cleanliness. They're looking for cleaner water. Do you see this as a kind of, I don't know, sort of war of, of the wealthy, ideological war of the wealthy? Yeah, I mean, there is certainly a case for what's called eco-colonialism, right? Yeah. And whether or not it's intended or not. And so this is this gets into a really touchy area, right? Yeah, but, yeah. You know, imagine a guy like John Kerry who owns, what, 12 homes, Two private jets, again, flown more miles in his career than you and I and all of our families ever will, who is now that, you know, and let's be candid, he's a big, rich white guy from America, comes from the Heinz family, you know, so he's got billions everywhere. And I don't fault him. I mean, good for him. Yeah, good on you. Right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's we call it the, the American dream. Why not? And then he gets on a plane to go over to Africa and say, you know, Uh, you guys want solar, right? And we're going to make sure that you get lots of solar. And they're looking at him going, what the hell are you talking about? We want the same energy source that lifted your society out of poverty. We don't want thing. We don't want the lights to go off at four in the afternoon. We want real energy. You know, we want firm power. And do you think this is why I think about the cops and stuff, you know, I mean, I went to the one in in England, sorry to interrupt, but I've met some brilliant people from around the world, but I kind of got a feeling they're thinking, yeah, this is lecturing us. And I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, I've not, I haven't been enough around the world to see what's happening in, in this space. But I get the feeling that there may be a bit of a, a, a two-world thing going on. Yeah, and this is above me in this regard. You know, I, I don't want to try to pretend to put some weird morality to it because I don't understand that. What I will say is this. I go back to the facts and the data, right? So yep. let me pick on Tesla because I love picking on Tesla because... <laughs> Again, they've gotten billions of taxpayer money and Elon Musk is fantastic. Again, good on you. You've worked the system. It's worked for you, but it's not helping any poor people. Let's not make any, you know, I mean, a Tesla's, they're fantastic cars to drive. I love them as a piece of engineering. Yeah. They're fun to drive. They've got the little, uh, you know, uh, you can karaoke as you drive down the road. What a blast. They're quiet. They're responsive. They're great vehicles. They're also, you know, they've got 20,000 US dollars attached to each one of them. Thank you very much. Right. It's, Mm -hmm. and let's do the math, right? The average income of, a Tesla owner here in the U.S. is about $180,000. Wow. No poor people are helped with the purchase of a Tesla. Let's just say this, right? Mm. And so I'm from downtown Oakland, California, which is a pretty rough and, you know, colored part of the country. Yeah. Not a lot of Teslas driving around there, right? This yeah. is, uh, you know, so uh, so what, what I object to is public money and people using uh, poor, poor colored, disenfranchised people to justify this. Oh, we're helping a lot of poor people by funding Teslas. No, you're not. You're helping rich people. And the the data shows that you're helping rich people. So people now say, well, it's early majority and adoption curves, you know, whatever. Call it whatever you want. It's really, it comes down to rich people helping rich people and, you know, spending that money. Be richer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So where do you want to go with this? Because, you know, in your book, you talk about kind of Look, let's have a reasoned debate. You know, you say, I want an open, transparent, bipartisan plan. So, you know, and you're not an alarmist and you're not a denier. So 
what can we do to try and stop this? Because today, I think, or the other day, there was an article about climate fear amongst young people. Yeah. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a piece. In fact, I saw a video of Al Gore shouting, we should all be angry, sitting on $300 million of his own wealth, saying we should all be angry about kind of what's happening with big oil and, you know, what's going on with stuff. And there is these kind of glory voices around it. But there are lots of great scientists. I have people, business people on the podcast every week doing great things, you know, trying to remediate things, trying to make, you know, better natural carbon sinks, trying to make things like cleaner batteries and doing all of this. And businesses getting on with it who are much more reasoned, much more sensible. Yeah. So how do we get to that, what you want in your book, which is let's have a balanced discussion? Yeah, you know, I think I always say the truth will set us free, right? And I'm not saying that I'm the truth, but pursuing truth and transparency is, I think that that has to be at the front of this. Look, look, scientists have to go back to being scientists. Yeah. They have to quit advocating. They have to quit telling, you know, when a scientist tells me I need solar, I'm, I look at him and I say, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you uh, Right? You're out of your lane. Get back in your lane. Go test stuff. Tell me what the science is of the, yeah. Right? I've been in the solutions game for years. I know where the holes are. Trust me. So let's, you know, let's pretend at least that we're looking for the truth as opposed to whatever it is that we have now. So I, I just am convinced that this is the way to do this is we have to be able to, to put it out there have open discussions. I don't know why we haven't had big, massive public forums mm. about this stuff, but you know, I would love to see stuff like that where you have scientists in big debates in front of cameras that are you know broadcast everywhere. I'd love to see that. Just let's ask questions. Let's be able to have these discussions. So I think that's the first one. The second thing, and I say this, this is perhaps a U.S. thing, is yeah. you know the key to climate salvation in the U.S., I believe, goes through red states. And right now you can just hear people screaming at me, right? Because, because it does, you know, part of the reason that it's not happening and we're not making better progress, you know why? Because half the world doesn't want it. Mm. I mean, really doesn't want it. Mm. And and here in the U.S., it's just true, right? We're, we want something reasonable. Most people want something reasonable, but we're not going to give up our kids' college to put solar modules on people's houses. Just not going to happen. Yeah. Do you think there's a, I don't know how true it is, but I saw that the film about kind of Nick Cheney. And there was a bit in it, which I'll never forget, where they took they got a sort of like focus group and they, they don't want to call it global warming. And he goes, Well, let's call it climate change. And yeah. I don't know whether it's true or not or whatever, but it was a great bit in the movie. But it kind of, you know, the play on the words was the idea. Do you think we've lost the thing that actually perhaps in a way I always find much more relevant, right? If I say to people, it's gonna be a half a degree warmer next 10, 15 years, I don't think anyone can conceptualize that. Yes. We're having a heat wave right now and we've yeah hotter summers and that's very true but you know the last time death valley was as hot it is right now was 19 i think 1931 or something so much less on yes and i'm not saying that the world's not getting warm i can see it i can see when i go on a holiday to the med but when you look at this thing the thing that people do relate to and i have some people from india on a polluted beach in mumbai yeah and they went and picked all the plastic off it you know, there's some brilliant stuff going on I've seen in the Indo-Pacific area where they're trying to clear up the stuff, stop bilge being pumped into rivers and yeah. killing fish. And you have it all the time in America. We've had it a lot here, you know, sewage and things like that. And when I was a kid, as I said, the, the pollution thing was very quantifiable. We all know when there's shit in our streets and we don't want it. Yes. But we don't yes. really relate to 
at 1.5. Do you think that somehow we need to pull that back into kind of the damage we're doing to the Earth rather than this conceptualised idea of what climate change is doing? Yeah, and that maybe is the third point to the question you asked earlier, which is, you know, our climate problem, let's just strip it all away. Our climate problem is an overconsumption problem. Yes. That's all it is. Yeah. It is we as we now have 8 billion people and we use too much stuff. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Earth, uh, in fact, today we're recording this Earth Offshoot Day is going to be uh, the earliest has been like the 2nd of August or something like that. Right. And in 71, it was, uh, I think, the 25th of December. Yeah. We're using too much. So that's the problem is overconsumption. Right. And so if you look at the solutions that we're funding, which is just more massive overconsumption, right? You sit there and you just scratch your head. You go, we're, no, we're not going to get there. So if the problem is we use too much stuff, the answer has to be use less stuff and remove carbon. Yep. That's it. Yep. Everything else. So that's what I rail on EVs because people tell me how they're going to save the planet. And I'm like, you do realize that you're adding tons of CO2 when you're driving that, right? These are things that add CO2. You've convinced yourself through this sort of a climate accounting trickery that being less bad is somehow making it better because you're saying, well, I was going to be a lot worse, but that's just this crazy logic, right? It's like, I was going to eat 20 pies a day for the next year, but now I'm only going to eat 10 so I'm going to give myself credit for saving 10 pies, right? <laughs> right? It's this weird logic. So look, we use too much stuff. That's the problem. The solution is use less stuff and remove carbon. And removing carbon is keep the tree in your backyard. Don't cut it down to put up a solar panel, for crying out loud. Don't mow down that uh, field of trees to put a windmill factory. I mean, this is... Right. So just basic logic. So you're talking about removing trash from a beach. Yeah. It's that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. I mean, honestly, just use less stuff. You know, we proved in 2020 as, as painful as it was with COVID. Of course. We all saw it around the world. Things, you know, the Ganges clearing up here in the UK, you know, but you suddenly heard birds that you hadn't heard for years. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And in the US, we cut emissions for the first time in decades. Yeah. In one year, what we've been trying to do with aggressive climate policy yeah. for decades we, we that we haven't achieved. But obviously, we, can't, we couldn't live like that, Mark. And we all know. That. Agreed. Agreed. So you've got to find a way... And people would probably say, yeah, you're right, we should use less. But the consumption model is the model of modern economics, global economics. You know, build cheap stuff from one part, move it somewhere else so that richer people can consume it. Sure. And then that's, you know, that that is the fundamentals that we're facing. So I fear that the consumption, and I, I believe, you know, I'm trying to do things in my own life, and I'm not some sort of eco-warrior, but to use a lot less, to eat a lot less, to not throw food and all these things, make shorter journeys, all of these things. But do you not find that the problem is, you know, and again, speaking personally, the whole two thirds of the world wants to catch up with probably not even more than that, you know, 75% of the world wants to catch up with the last 25% who've been having it good for the last 100 years. Well, that's true. And so there's no one size fits all, right? So there's definitely a developed nation versus a developing nation, you know, telling, asking developing nations to, hey, just use less stuff when they already don't have stuff, yeah. right? You're, that's not going to happen. Yeah. But honestly, you know, like, you know, I just went on vacation. Maybe I go on vacation once every year and a half as opposed to every year. I can uh, turn my lights off at night. Maybe I don't go buy a new EV next year. And I just keep driving my 100,000 mile car already. And I telecommute one day at work and I ride my bike the next yeah. day at work or I take the bus, right? Yeah. I've just cut my yeah. transportation uses by 40%. So there's lots of things. I mean, look, I... 
this pressure to consume, I think, you know, we're not going to stall the global economy by not buying the TV next month, right? It's just not going to happen. So I think economies are great at adjusting to, you know, up surges in demand, uh, but also, you know, lower demand as well. So if, if, you know, if we buy less stuff, they'll make less stuff. It's, it'll, it'll, it'll happen. And, um, but I mean, I think part of the answer is to strip it down. We've invented all this language that's so sophisticated and all these mysterious goals like the 1.5 degree. I mean, if you did that in your house, you'd barely notice the difference. But for some reason, we think it's a global goal that we actually have to spend trillions to fix. So, right, to strip all that stuff down, it really comes down to some very basic things. Mark, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I know a lot of people will be screaming at this, which is great. We want debate. And that's what I want. And I want to have reasoned argument, not just argument for the sake of it. I think your stuff is great. I think you are, you know, talking from a position that I personally agree, which is let's have a balanced, reasoned argument. Mark Cortez, all the best with everything you're doing. And thanks very much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.